0: It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: At 36 years old, most physicians are just getting up to serious full speed in their medical careers, carving out a niche, perhaps making a name for themselves, and doing what they are passionate about, what they train so hard for, healing patients and making their physical lives better. But at the age of 36, Yale and Stanford University graduate and trained neurosurgeon, Dr. Paul Kalanithi, his focus in life suddenly shifted from a focus of building a career and building a family to questions about his own mortality, having been diagnosed, unexpectedly so, with lung cancer, stage four lung cancer. Through the process of dealing with this, many questions were raised. One of the issues that Paul has left as a gift for not only his own family, but frankly for all of us, that at one time or another, at some point in life, we'll face questions of our own mortality, is a gift left behind of his experiences, his observations, his feelings, detailed in a new book called When Breath Becomes Air, newly published by Random House. Joining me now is Dr. Kalanithi's wife, Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, who, by the way, is a clinical assistant professor of medicine at Stanford School of Medicine, and Dr. Lucy, great to have you on the program. Hi,
2: thank you so much for having
1: me. You know, your story reads like one of those amazing love affairs. The two of you, I believe, met uh, when you were first year medical students back at Yale University and you followed your lives and careers and marriage to uh, wind up here on the West Coast and finishing up your studies at Stanford University. And by all accounts, this was sort of, um, well, what do we call it? A, A fairy book kind of a relationship, wasn't it?
2: Um, Yeah, in my mind, um, uh, I feel so lucky to have been married to Paul. And it's it's funny because you describe that sequence of events. And I look back and, you know, a year ago, three years ago, he was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer and he was 36. Two years ago, we were having our baby shower. A year ago, he had just died. And now his book is out and it's being translated into almost 40 languages and it's just like the course of things that you just never know what's going to happen in your life and so looking back over those years you know meeting him 13 years ago and then up until now when he's not with us but he's written this book and we have a daughter growing it's um it's really um you know it's life
1: This book, let's talk about some of his motivations. First off, for the benefit of listeners, put some things in perspective for us. So as we mentioned, um, he had wrapped up his studies at Stanford University um, and was beginning, literally beginning his career as a neurosurgeon. What led to the diagnosis of stage four lung cancer? So he was diagnosed in May of 2013, and
2: starting around Christmas, the year before, he started to develop some back pain that was kind of unexplained. And then in between Christmas and the spring of the next year, he started losing weight, um, you know, without really knowing why. And then he started to have night sweats and a cough. And it's funny because we were both doctors, so we were kind of worried about these symptoms. But at the same time, he was working as a Um, neurosurgery resident, a chief resident at Stanford and you know he was on his feet for 14 hours a day and doing brain surgery and you know he would skip lunch or eat a Snickers bar for lunch and so to have some of those aches and to lose a bit of weight when you're working that hard initially we didn't we didn't realize what it was and then finally um, we had the, the diagnosis that he had metastatic cancer and he probably only had a few years to live and so at that point, the the book he wrote and the um, task of that time was to try to make sense of um, as, a, as a young doctor and as a lover of literature who had also studied philosophy, like how you put together all you know intellectually and philosophically about mortality and then facing it in a real and emotional way, um, what do you do with that? And so he wrote this book as a way to make sense of it and to share it with
1: readers. It's interesting because your experience, I think, tracks what most of us would think at that age. Well, this certainly can't be anything serious. I mean, maybe a little bit worn out, needs perhaps some some time off, uh, you know, maybe a little bit on the lethargic side because of working such long hours. I mean, this is the experience of every uh, physician, to be sure. And I think no one, even with the both of you, with backgrounds in medicine from very prestigious schools i would imagine would have thought that this could have been anything more severe than just kind of feeling under the
2: weather right it's just so rare um uh exactly and then you know a a little while before the diagnosis we started to um suspect it and that was when he um you know uh, really started getting it checked out and then soon the diagnosis came
1: Lucy, what was this like for you when the diagnosis came, you're both physicians, so you understand not only all of the terminology, but the ramifications of the terminology. And you're you're suddenly, you, you have to have felt at least in those initial moments, like number one, this can't be happening. And number two, how is this possible? You guys are just getting your careers and, and lives together started. You haven't even begun to, to, to start your own family. And suddenly this diagnosis, it's not just lung cancer, it's stage four lung right. cancer. What was your reaction well, okay. like?
2: Yeah, you're summing it up pretty well. Um, it's it was this really profound and painful moment where um, we had we Paul got admitted to Stanford Hospital um, to get you know expedited workup and and quick investigation of what was going on and. He went down to the CT scanner, and then he was wheeled back into the hospital room, and no one was in the room. The two of us were in the room, and because he was a physician at Stanford, he went over to the computer, and he typed his own name in, and he pulled up the cap scan images. And so he describes this at the beginning of the book, the feeling of looking through those pictures of, you know, somebody's organs and seeing cancer throughout the lungs and the bones and knowing it's your own body that you're looking at and so he's standing there with me, his wife um, and we just sort of, nobody was giving us the news in like a little kind gentle dribble, it was like the two of us together looking at it with our own eyes and then being doctors we knew that this was a terminal illness so it just sort of hit us all, hit us all at once um, and then luckily I think we over the phase of thinking why me how could this happen um you know why us because we've seen it happen to so many people this kind of thing happened to so many people um you know he was a brain surgeon and so he was familiar with head trauma and aneurysms and tumors and then the immediate thing we both thought was you know now it's our turn it's our turn to enter into this um this kind of challenging
1: experience and what a curiosity that i think we all tend to ask those sorts of questions uh, having dealt with this uh, issue of uh, cancer myself in my own life uh, the initial question of why me i think is is very normal it's very human but then it maybe even begs a bigger question why not me i mean it happens
2: uh, that's right so exactly paul exactly paul wrote that in the book and said yeah the answer would be why not me you know so once
1: you get over the the initial shock, was there did you go through feelings of anger that that sense of of this this young relationship you'd known each other uh, barely a decade at that point that that all of a sudden this the love of your life was going to be ripped from you I mean certainly the the seriousness of the fact that the cancer had metastasized was already at stage four at the point of the diagnosis I mean you had to have Known that the clock was going to be ticking very soon, what was your reaction to that?
2: Yeah, that's right. We didn't feel particularly angry. I think for me, the main emotions I had were, um, you know, painful emotions like sadness and anxiety, um, and then sort of the the real task. We were really in love. We really knew how much we were going to need each other and wanted to take care of each other. And then, you know, we we certainly had these. Like um, real disorientation and a shift in his identity, you know, like you were describing. He, Paul, um, as a young neurosurgeon, had this whole career mapped out in his mind about being a neurosurgeon and a scientist, and maybe a writer down the line because he loved literature and writing. But suddenly, with only a few years left, um, your whole identity just changes completely, and you you have to make sense of a whole new world inside of circumstances and I think other people who are facing a serious or terminal illness can relate to that idea Um, and so writing ultimately became the the big purpose for him, the way for him to cope and the way for him to communicate and feel connected and uh, purposeful and there
1: are layers of complexity here because not only is there the sense of okay, time is suddenly short we thought we had our whole lives together, suddenly there's now an expiration date that we can see so you have to contend with the implications of that on your relationship and outlook on life and then you, you point out something i think that that uh, perhaps few of us think about that physicians have to deal with and that is that you might spend a career a lifetime uh, caring for patients and you're used to the physician patient relationship, uh, you are the one who's giving the the diagnosis or prescribing the treatment or in your husband Paul's case, uh, you know, performing the surgery on the patient and suddenly the roles have been significantly switched. He goes from being Dr. Paul, the physician, to patient Paul. And as much as I would imagine, some might say, "Well, gee, uh, all of the advantages because of his medical training and background." There's things that he will understand and be able to comprehend that that the un, uh, uninitiated, uh, you know, average patient out there, who's who's you know spent no more time in the medical journals than you know occasionally happening on WebMD, has no clue of what's transpiring. But I would imagine there are ways in which perhaps Lucy, his background in medicine and the fact that he's suddenly gone from being physician Paul to patient. Paul, must have had some ups and some downs to it.
2: Yes, that's right. Just as far as the experience of being doctors, it was sort of the best and worst thing um, for us because you're exactly right. We knew, we knew how to use the medical system and we understood what was happening and we knew the prognosis, which is you know really painful but helpful at the same time. It helped us make decisions like whether or not to have a baby. And then I, as his caregiver knew all the medications and how to use them and what the side effects were. I mean, there were a lot of stresses that many families have that our knowledge helps us um, get around, which I'm really grateful for. And then another thing I'm really grateful for is the other thing you just asked about, which is switching from the experience of being a doctor to the experience of being a patient, being on the other side of that relationship. So for both of us as doctors, um, it gave me such a depth of understanding of the degree to which even if you have the knowledge, um, the, the, um, existential and, um, uh, experiential and care and empathy that all the, all that stuff that your doctor provides you, we were so hungry for it. And it just helped really enrich my understanding of how deep and supportive that relationship can be. Um, if you're lucky, it was, um, Paul's dependence on his doctor was much more than I would have expected from a young male neurosurgeon, you know, but he, he really was emotionally dependent on a doctor in a way that I thought was really profound and interesting to see. And it's, Helped shape my own own practice of the doctor and understanding
1: of that relationship. Dr. Lucy Collinithy with us today. We're talking about a new book just newly released by Random House called "When Breath Becomes Air." It is a New York Times bestseller written by her husband, Dr. Paul Collinithy, and we're talking about their experiences following the diagnosis at the age of 36 of stage four lung cancer. We'll take a brief time out. Come back to more of our discussion as Lifeline
0: continues.
1: Welcome back to The Conversation. Craig Roberts along with a very special guest today. She is Dr. Lucy Kalanithi. Her husband, Paul, the author of a new book called When Breath Becomes Air, newly published by Random House. This is a New York Times best-selling book that details the observations and life experiences and in many ways, I think, sets down a legacy by her husband, Dr. Paul Kalanithi, as he was diagnosed with stage four terminal lung cancer at the very young age, of 36 and 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 very new into his career as a physician. Let's talk about his decision to start journaling and, and begin compiling what eventually would become when breath becomes air you mentioned about his his background and love for literature uh, was this one of those bucket list types of things lucy where he he had a book in him that had to come out or was there was there more to it than this was it in part maybe coping with the day-to-day experience of going through chemotherapy and all that attends to a stage 4 um, a cancer diagnosis, along with wanting to, I would imagine, leave a legacy behind for you and eventually your daughter?
2: Um, yes, exactly, all of those things. It's wild because if you asked him when he was a teenager what he'd be when he grew up, he definitely would have said, I'm going to be a writer. And then he surprised himself by going into medicine. He studied liter- literature and philosophy and then decided to come into medicine because he was so interested in the question of what makes us human and how do we make sense of building meaning in our lives despite the fact that we will all die. And so he was trying to get at that big question by um, studying literature and then ultimately becoming a neurosurgeon and thinking about neuroscience. Um, And... Uh, then the writing of the book it's, it was so fortuitous and amazing the way it happened. He became he was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer when he was thirty six, just starting his neurosurgical career, and then he wrote a little essay called How Long Have I Got Left that um he sent it to a friend for comments and it was almost like a little journal essay about coping with uncertainty and making sense of um you know how I, I know I'm dying, but even still, I don't know how much time I have left. And um, his friend forwarded it straight to the op-ed desk at the New York Times, and they published it almost verbatim. And Paul had this huge response from it, where for a while he was getting an email a minute. Um, just a real um, positive re- experience hearing from doctors and patients, and ultimately, quickly from that essay came a book deal. Hmm. Um, uh, and then it was sort of a it was a journal, like you described. He was writing the manuscript to help him cope in real time, very intimate. He wrote down things that were more intimate than he could say out loud to me. So me reading the manuscript as he was writing it was actually a really powerful part of what was happening in our marriage as he was ill. And then he knew that it would be a legacy for our daughter. And his real purpose was um, not just a journal or a private document, but um, really helping bring the reader into what it feels like to face mortality um, in a very personal way. And at the same time, he's reflecting back on philosophy and literature and his experiences in medicine. So it's sort of a mix of his whole um, everything he'd learned to that point and he's trying to sh- he's trying to give it up a gift or something
1: to share. What's amazing about this is is you get the sense perhaps that he's working through a lot of the big questions that quite frankly all of us will eventually have to work through or at least be confronted by. It, it, it might be uh, debatable as to how many people work through it. I, I, I think that perhaps some people work their way through the entirety of life and, and as they begin to face uh, the, the end chapter don't really think through uh, has my life been meaningful, and and and, and how do we make uh, a sense of, of of meaning and purpose? In life, even in the face of things that we cannot control, and in some cases are are very unwelcome, at least early on, and that is death. Like in the case of, of Paul, who was facing his mortality at an age probably uh, a third of what is is normal for most people these days, based on longevity tables, and then too to leave that that experience those observations those feelings behind in a in a permanent document that not only would share his own insights into this question of what does all of this mean but then too to leave that behind as a gift for you and for your daughter as you read through the journal in preparation for bringing this book to publication were there things that surprised you
2: um uh, kind of. So, I, as I mentioned, he was writing it. Um, sort of a central piece of the last year of his life was the experience of writing the book, and, and I was really helping. You know, we timed his um, chemo around it, and we adjusted his medication so he could concentrate or sit for long periods of time. You know, the, the process of um, being ill with cancer, as you know, is um, isn't easy, and he's trying to write during that, and so as he was writing I was reading you know what was coming out on the page about his experience and there are a couple different things like he wrote about a rocky patch we went through in our marriage he writes about that right at the beginning of the book and then um, he writes about how we wrestled with the decision of whether we should have a baby despite his illness and um, you know he was writing about these really intimate things and I thought you know should I I ask him to tone it down or take them out or whatever and then I was like you know if I were a reader those are the parts I would love I would love the parts that were real and authentic and this book is quite intimate and detailed and raw um and I think that's partly why people are responding to it sort of unflinching and really honest and um and it's his story I I wasn't going to ask him to change his story so it did surprise me how um uh, sort of intimate, the types of intimate things he shared, but I actually think that was a really wise decision and it turned out to be really positive, including for me. Um, you know, it. it is helping me have intimate conversations with other people based on what Paul shared about our
1: experience. Well, in so many ways, it is a gift that many people, quite frankly, Lucy, will never experience. Uh, They will meet, fall in love, build a family, have a relationship, spend a lifetime together, and then once death takes one of the two uh, individuals in that marriage relationship, there are a lot of memories left behind, there are some wonderful photographs, but to have a permanent document uh, that details the thought process and observations and life experiences that that can go on even to serve as a guide for your daughter in years to come is is an incredibly rare and I think precious gift. And the other thing too that you talk about in the um, um, the epilogue to this new book, which again for listeners is "When Breath Becomes Air," newly published by Random House, uh, written by Dr. Paul Catalani. Uh, for you, in in this process, you talk about much of what you've learned in terms of going through grief, what that means, how that nobody can really dictate to you how to grieve or what that process looks like or the timetable. And the other thing that you said that that really struck me, you talk about this notion and you at one point quote C.S. Lewis that death in and of itself in a relationship is not the end and so often a lot of people say well the, now that my husband is gone my wife is gone, it's over and it, the reality is it's not It's not the end it's just a different phase of love uh, elaborate on that
2: oh, I love that quote so much he, um, C.S. Lewis writes that in um, A Grief Observed and he, he says exactly that bereavement is not the truncation of married love but one of its regular phases and that I just gasped as I read it because I felt that way. I felt after Paul died, I still love him just the same way I loved him. Even if I get remarried in the future, I will still love Paul forever. You know, he's still, um, you know, part of my family and my life experience. And then the, um, the process of shepherding his manuscript for the book, When Breath Becomes Air into the real book and then helping Random House choose the cover and writing the epilogue about how Paul died and reflecting on Paul those experiences feel they literally make me feel as if Paul and I are still a team I'm still working on this book and you know, like I'm still doing something to help Paul live out his life it's really interesting it's um, I knew I would feel sad and anxious after he died and I have but I didn't realize that those same feelings of love and um, commitment would continue just the same and they have I wrote a I wrote an essay in the New York Times called My Marriage Didn't End When I Became a Widow and it's about it's about that exact idea and I think I've had a lot of people tell me that they can relate to that idea about grief.
1: Your your young daughter was too young to, to really perhaps remember much about her father, but as she grows older and goes from being a little girl into a young lady, uh, this this is a book that can serve and guide her well, isn't it?
2: I hope so. It's really my pride possession and I'm I'm I can't wait until she can read it.
1: Um The takeaway... For for listeners, and we've talked about a lot of the topics here today. Lucy uh, gone from the shock of a terminal diagnosis at a young age to what it means in terms of the impact on a relationship to trying to think through uh, suddenly facing these questions of eternity at a very early age or a young age, and then uh, wrestling with the questions of meaning of life and the legacy that we would hope to leave behind the impact of our of our presence, so to speak, having been here on earth in in terms of the big takeaway if there's any one thing that you would hope the readers can really extract from paul's book what would it be
2: you know the book he's writing it as you know from the perspective of a neurosurgeon and a lover of literature and a terminally ill man and he's talking about facing mortality and the thing he wanted to share is you know as you as you're dying and as you're living um how do you wrestle with your own values and then create a life that's built around those values? And that's truly meaningful. Um, uh, you know, and it's, (laughs) I keep being afraid, you know, people will ask me, so what, so what is the meaning of life? And what is, when Rusty comes there say about that? And I think partly it's the struggle to find meaning that is the meaning. Um, and that's, sort of what he gets
1: deep into. Those are ultimately questions, of course, that we can only answer for ourselves, but I, I think what's remarkable about this book and both his approach and the effort that you've made in in making his dream as a published author uh, come to fruition and leaving that legacy behind, not just for yourself and your daughter, but for all of us, and that is to also paint a picture. We, we often hear, especially at, at uh, eulogies, about how well somebody lived and what a Class act that they were in life, and yet it is rare that we get a glimpse into uh, the process of how well somebody can die and what it means to to die with grace. And and what that picture looks like—that's a part of life that that you know we don't understand a lot about. We spend uh, oftentimes a lot of energy in trying to avoid that, and yet learning how to to make the the, the final moments of life have as much significance and value, and leave behind as much legacy at the end as we do throughout the years on Earth. I think is so incredibly important, and what makes this particular book so special and so unique. The book again is called When Breath Becomes Air newly published by Random House. It is the story of Dr. Paul Catalani, And we appreciate, uh, Dr. Lucy, you spending some time with us today to share your story.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: And again, I'll remind listeners, the book is available through the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also get it on uh, the website for Dr. Paul Catalani, Let me spell the name for you. It's Paul, P A U L K A L A N. I-T-H-I. And if you just Google when breath becomes air, you'll be able to find the website. Our thanks again to Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, clinical assistant professor of medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine, for being with us today on this edition of Lifeline.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: We often hear stories about people that struggle with um, addictions of one sort or another or in other cases people that deal with um, depression that uh, is not of their own choosing but particularly in terms of a, a diagnosis of clinical depression where people sometimes in spite of their best efforts are fighting a a a monster that they just can't quite face and deal with what does it mean How do you address that? I think that uh, while we've made some great and significant strides in the mental health community in understanding what so-called clinical depression diagnosis is and how to treat it, how to deal with it, for a lot of us in the church, this is still kind of a big curiosity. It's a ministry. Um, Joining me now is a gentleman who had to deal with this in terms of um, his um, ministry partner, being diagnosed with clinical depression that eventually ended up taking his life. He talks about the story in a not-so-typical journey of a Mennonite actor. The book is called Laughter is Sacred Space. Ted Schwartz, great to have you on the show today.
0: Thank you very much. It's good to be with you.
1: Fascinating book and a lot of turns uh, and I think ways in which we can learn from your life story. Your um, your beginnings are kind of unique in the sense that uh, you were studying in seminary and uh, had full-on plans to become a, a pastor in the Mennonite community there, part of the, uh, I guess what, the Pennsylvania Dutch community.
0: Yeah, around that area, a little bit east of uh, what we generally consider to be the, um, the classic Amish-Mennonite-Pennsylvania-Dutch uh, area, a little bit east of that, toward Philadelphia.
1: Okay, so that the that, yeah. uh, general neck yeah. of the woods. That's and uh, along the way, uh, it sounds like God had different designs than you did. Is it fair to say it that way?
0: I think that's a pretty good way to say it. Yeah, I, I, I think that I, I'm a person who... Um, uh, like many of us i think we're confused by some of the directions that our lives seems to be taking and, and uh god's hand in that may may not be a very um, very visible at the time being makes an awful lot of sense uh in retrospect um i was supposed to be a, a, a traditional pastor in a pulpit and uh, fell in love with theater while i was in seminary and uh, i was an older student a non-traditional student married with three killed three three kids and uh and started um, a path uh, toward being an actor and writing writing uh, plays, and uh, I had met a uh, another quite talented comedic partner, um, Lee Eshelman, and we began doing comedy together, and then and started working with biblical story and trying to find where the humor was in that story. Not not trying to make fun of something uh, by laying on the laughter on the outside. Um, I like to think of it as finding where the humanity and the humor connect and create. Uh, the situations of humor out of, kind out of trying to uh, feel out a character from the inside out.
1: How did your your community Ted your family you mentioned it was kind of a, a non-traditional trajectory for you anyway yeah. insofar as the fact that you were already married and with the family and I understand that the congregation that was anticipating you to, to eventually uh, become their pastor was covering uh, your expenses and so forth yeah. and 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 yeah. you make this what it would from an outsider to appear to be this 180 how do you go from studying to become a a traditional Mennonite pastor Very sta- and serious, you know, as, as I guess some perspectives might be, to suddenly being a comedic actor on a stage, working with a, uh, another partner in yeah. interpreting Scripture, bringing Scripture to life, finding the humor, again, not the ha-ha, let's make fun of it, a- poke fun at it rather, yeah. but to see the humanity side, as you say, of it all. It just, it seems to be just two absolute opposite ends of the continuum.
0: Well, I think at one level it really does feel that way, and my congregation back home was not very happy with me. Just not, uh. Uh, and my wife has been uh, extremely um, patient uh, over the years. As uh, anyone who, who starts their own business then knows that the pieces of are struggling to uh, to make make ends meet in that direction too. I, I think I've come to the conclusion that it makes an awful lot of sense. Um, because um, I think theater can be a wonderful metaphor for how we're supposed to function as human beings. Um, uh, to be a good actor means that you're completely present in the moment, uh, you you have empathy, uh, you care about another person, that's the only way you can feel like uh, you are connecting to one another on stage. There's a, a great deal of humility and vulnerability that happens when you're an actor on stage, and it makes a lot, a, a lot of sense um, at one level. Uh, and also, um, it's storytelling, and, and story stories remain one of, if not the best, way to communicate truth and uh, to grab people's emotions and where their hearts are is to tell stories.
1: Does it make um, it easier to to see other perspectives? too? and I ask that question, Ted, because let's face it: when you're when you're an actor, you're you're essentially becoming someone that you're not, and you're yeah, attempting to convince yeah. the audience that you're you are this person whom you're not really. Yes, and when you absolutely. get into that position, does it allow you to see things from a different perspective? Is, is that is that how you maybe yeah. eventually were able to say, no, this full-time pastoring thing in a Mennonite church, no, that's not exactly what I'm called to do.
0: <laughs> I, I think that was a great deal of it. I think it's part of why it felt like home to me. I felt like I was finally where I was supposed to be. I think I would have been uh, perhaps a decent pastor. Uh, but there's a good chance that I would have been a very frustrated pastor. Fear uh, allowed me to find places where I was able to use the gifts that I think I was given uh, much more fully. Um, and I think you're exactly right. You have to learn how um, to care about another person. Uh, to be able to fully adapt on stage and to be convincing that you're you're someone else, um, theater and acting is a wonderful paradox of pretending to be someone else and being completely wholly who you are. Mm. The best actors are the ones that just open themselves up and let you see what's inside, and and that is why we connect to people that that we feel like are good actors because we can feel them being completely honest.
1: So to so, uh, be can... completely to be to be convincing to those of us that are on the other side of the stage or the screen, as the case may yeah. be, yeah. Um, you you have to take on, so to speak, enough of this character and demonstrate enough understanding and and sympathy, maybe to the point of empathy for who yes. this person is, maybe the plight that they are facing. To to be thoroughly convincing, and I'm wondering, did did all of that experience help make it easy for you along the way? In trying to make sense out of um, the, the the horrific challenge that Lee was facing with a diagnosis of clinical depression,
0: well, that's an interesting question. I I, I think that uh, perhaps so. I, I'm not sure uh, an empathetic person will be drawn. I think to to, to acting in the arts, uh, but it will also teach you. Uh, I think that's probably the case. It, it, it's. You know, it was a complicated relationship in many ways. We were we were best friends, um, but we were trying to negotiate this business as well as creatively. And anytime anybody uh, anyone tries to create something together, be it writing or writing music together, they know that there, there's certain tensions on, on what on what, on what that means. And um, sometimes best friends shouldn't go into business, and sometimes they should. For us, it worked really well, um, the illness notwithstanding. Um, you, you spend an awful lot of time together when you have a traveling company. Uh, sometimes we spend more time with uh, one another than we did our wives. We used to joke about it being uh, our second marriage for each of us. <laughs> um, so um, I think that was part of it. I, I didn't know... A lot about mental uh, illness in terms of depression and bipolar illness at all before we met Lee. Um, and so it was a very much of a learning process. You, you, you try to have as much empathy as you can for the struggles that they're going through, but sometimes life has to, life has to be lived and, um, everything can't stop around, um, if there's a business to run, there's a family to run. His wife, you know, they're raising a family as well. Um, so yes, that that's very much the case. Uh, that it was helpful, but I think any struggle like that that you go together, there's going to be ups and downs with that. And, um,
1: uh, and and it sounds like there were in this case. I mean, you're you're sure. watching this happening. You're trying to understand what's happening, and yet at a level, I mean, I, I guess it's it's not as easy as it might seem to be when we say well just try to get into the other person's head walk a mile in their shoes this is this is it takes a little bit further than that doesn't it
0: yeah it is it is um it there's only so much you can go um uh, i think it was the illness that that made um uh, I wouldn't call it a barrier, but there's some things that it's, it's impossible to know how someone else is feeling when they're, when they're struck with an illness like that. Um, my own depression that I felt, uh, after Lee's death and, and uh, trying to figure out what was next and, and what did it all mean? And the grief that goes along with that. Uh, I remember thinking a couple of times, I said, uh, I, I know what this feels like to, to, to try and function on a daily basis with something that is much worse. Um, I don't know how people do it. Um, and that gave me a little bit of insight, but it, 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 I want to be very clear that it was nowhere anywhere close to, to what you would have gone through on a regular basis where simply getting out of bed feels like it's the biggest struggle you're going to do,
1: go through that day. Yeah, I mean, we're in a season, for example, this time of year when a lot of folks struggle with varying degrees of depression because... It's a first major holiday with a loved one who was passed on. Uh, there's there's some sense of loss in life and uh, all of a sudden the holidays don't seem to mean as much as they used to and there may be folks listening to our conversation right now saying, you know, uh, Ted, Craig, I'm there right now. Uh, I struggle with getting out of bed in the morning. I'm not quite sure how how to get myself motivated. Uh, It's every fiber within my being to get up, get dressed, and go to work and try to put on a happy face when I don't feel like doing any of that. Um, What does all of this mean? How do I address all of it? Um, Joining me today in the conversation, Ted Schwartz. Um, Ted, as we mentioned earlier, is a Mennonite actor um, who talks about life after uh, his creative partner took his own life uh, following a a multi-year battle with bipolar illness uh, that he eventually succumbed to the disease and uh, how do we deal with varying degrees of um, be it depression to uh, one extreme uh, to to outright uh, mental illness on another we'll get back to more of our insights today right after an update on traffic conversation today is with Mennonite actor Ted Schwartz. The book is called Laughter is Sacred Space, a not-so-typical journey of a Mennonite actor. This journey from studying to become a full-time pastor to discovering the, the arts and then moving in a ministry direction that way, and then the diagnosis that we mentioned earlier of your partner Lee struggling with a clinical diagnosis of, of depression to the point of being bipolar. We talked earlier, Lee, about uh, folks being depressed Around the holidays, and that certainly can be a challenge. But Lee's uh, Lee's disease went much deeper than that, didn't it?
0: Yes, it did. It was it was the kind that um, well, I describe it at one time, just It's the uh, it's the constant companion. It's the monster that hides not just under the bed, but around every corner. It's it's part of uh, part of every day. It's part of. Um, it's—I uh, I call it sometimes the demon that sits on the shoulder and whispers in your ear. Mm. Um, It's—it's it, hard to—it's um, hard to really articulate some of the issues that we that seem to to deal with. Medication is an important part of anybody's treatment, medication and therapy. Um, but that can uh, most of those have uh, at least at some level um, uh, medication. I mean side effects that affect also. Uh, who you are as a person and, and it, uh, it it can be frustrating because you don't think you you are who you uh, are at the core of your being um, for some it, it becomes um, uh, a spiritual dilemma and um, I really don't think it it, it should be um, people cast themselves in, 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 in being distanced from God because they have this particular illness and, it, and I think it's a, um, it's a horrific. Um, I'm not sure I'd call it a mistake. a misnomer about about what it is.
1: How how did you discover? How did you first find out about these past? Well,
0: it, in, in many in many cases, apparently uh, in young men in their early uh, early to mid twenties, it can it can uh, surface. Um, so I met Lee Williams twenty three, and uh, so there were certain hints of it before that. And uh, I was in full time school, uh, in uh, finishing college, and then going into seminary. So I had a certain amount of of um, life that I was doing there with a family of three boys, um, uh, very young four, four two, and six months when I started school. Uh, so I and my wife were. were were really engrossed in that, so it wasn't until they and I began uh, to do a bit more work together and started seeing each other as, as friends and friends of the family, he was still single at the time. So it was within two years that it started to surface, and um, um, I mean, everybody has points where they're despondent, um, but they usually see that there's, uh, oftentimes we can see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and we, we help, we talk to people, we we talk to pastors, and we talk to friends, we talk to counselors, and get professional help, and you can find your way through it. Uh, for me, it just seemed to be uh, uh, something that that with Julio, the manic manic parts were were exhilarating and scary at the same time because he was tremendously creative. Uh, he was a, he was a visual artist, and he was a, a wonderful actor at the same time. So he'd be wonderfully creative at those times. Um, I think uh, a 20 to 30 year uh, struggle with this um, can wear you down. Um, so where that the highs are no longer very high, uh, but the lows continue to be low. Um, uh, that's what I, I feel like I've experienced with Lee. And um, it, 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 At the point where he, he had taken his life, it didn't feel like it was too, in my mind, tremendously different than any other events over the previous 10 to 15 years. Uh-huh.
1: And, you know, we often hear that, that yeah. we look at these, these circumstances immediately surrounding a person's decision to take their own life. Yeah. And you say, well, you know, the day before, the day yeah. of, the, I saw them that morning. They seemed to be quite normal. Yeah, a couple of things had happened the day before that might have added a bit to the stress, but didn't seem That's to be right. anything over the the top, anything extraordinary. But you mentioned yeah. something, uh, and uh, maybe it was just in, in quick passing, but I think profound observation, Ted, and that is the idea that this tends to wear you down after exactly. a time, that this is not a single event, but layer upon layer upon layer. Am I right?
0: Exactly, exactly. We we had attended a concert the night before, uh, about two hours away with another mutual friend, and had a wonderful time. Three of us guys night out, we, we had a, a great time, and then the next, that morning uh, we set up for a show. We were due to do two performances locally, Friday and Saturday night, and we set up on Thursday morning. Um, so all of those things seemed very familiar. Um, there was, I, I knew he was agitated, or, or I should say he was, he was uh, anxious, um, but that, that didn't seem to be anything tremendously different and, um, you know, in, in, in almost 20 years on the road, we missed, um, one show for a snowstorm and, um, a second half of a show because I fell and, and uh, com- computed my arm, uh, on the edge of the stage. But in 20 years, that's the only shows we've ever missed. So it never entered my mind that we would miss a show. Mm. Um, for
1: this particular reason. Let's pause on that point. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. Uh, with us today is actor Ted Schwartz. A look at his book, Laughter is Sacred Space. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more as Lifeline continues.